Welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. We're here to talk about practical things for the benefit of Howard Community College's students, employees, parents, and friends. My guest today is Alan Steinhorn, a distinguished lawyer here in the state of Maryland for more than 30 years. And our topic is something that's a little bit different than what we've spoken about before. Typically, we have chosen a topic, whether it's something like divorce and family law or DWIs or how to deal with the police or personal injury cases, and we've discussed practical ramifications of such cases. Today, we're actually going to talk about the court system, how to access the court system, and how to have things go your way as best as you can control it. As always, the show is reflective of the opinions of myself and my guests and not of Howard Community College. And any of the information that we impart is not intended to be legal advice. If you require legal advice for your individual legal situation, please contact an attorney or contact your local bar association. They can direct you to attorneys that they know are experienced in your particular area of legal interest. Welcome to the show, Alan. It's great to have you back again. Thank you, Bob. Love being here. So how long have you been a lawyer, first of all? I was admitted to the Maryland Bar in 1985, so I believe that's 32 years. Oh, my Lord. And uh, you have occasion to practice in the state courts of Maryland, but we also have federal courts. Isn't that correct? Yes, we have two different court systems in this country. We have a federal court system and the state court system. Most of your listeners are going to be involved in the state system, but there's another system that could, uh, could involve them, and that's the federal. Okay. Federal court cases can be things like personal injury, car crash, medical malpractice cases, correct? Well, they can, but they have to be of a value greater than $75,000, and they have to involve citizens, or I should say parties, from different states. Okay. So in other words, if I were injured in a car crash in Maryland and I was a citizen of Pennsylvania and the person who brought about my injury was from Maryland, that's something that would qualify for federal court if my case was worth more than $75,000. Yes, that's called federal diversity jurisdiction. If the parties are from two different states, you could choose to file in the federal court instead of the state court, provided your claim is worth more than $75,000. So who makes the determination what my case is worth? Usually that's within the uh, province of your lawyer. Okay. So a lawyer looks at certain factors and they help that helps them determine whether it can cross the threshold of the $75,000. Yes. When it comes to injury cases, it's a little more difficult. Um, if you're driving a $100,000 Rolls Royce and somebody totals your car and it costs $100,000 to replace, that's pretty easy to determine. If you have a car accident case and you recover in three months, let's say you have a, a neck injury or a back injury, and you've got $5,000, while it is conceivable that a jury could award you $75,000, it's highly unlikely. So the cases that go into federal court that involve personal injuries, that is cases like personal injury that don't involve federal statutes, federal issues, you're going to be looking at a more significant injury case than you might see in the state courts. Okay. Although you will see those significant cases in state courts also where there's not diversity jurisdiction. I didn't mean to be confusing there. Okay. So is there any sort of penalty if you hypothetically bring a case in federal court and it ends up a jury awards less than $75,000? Well, no. It is up to the defense lawyer to move to dismiss the case for lack of jurisdiction if they can determine that the case could not be worth $75,000 or more. It's a little more difficult in a personal injury case or a medical malpractice case in that – 
pain and suffering damages are not finite the way you would have a finite damage if you lost a $100,000 Rolls Royce. And I don't know how many people that's going to apply to. Okay. Another area of federal jurisdiction is bankruptcy law. Isn't that correct? The bankruptcy laws of our country are federal statutes. So if a person is in the situation where they declare bankruptcy, they will be in the federal court system because the state court system does not handle bankruptcy cases. Okay. And federal court also covers certain areas of criminal law as well. There are federal statutes that apply in many instances. So if you have violated a federal statute, you would be prosecuted in federal court. There may be similar statutes in the state court, and there could be circumstances where the facts of a case could allow someone to be charged either in federal court or state court. So not to politicize things, but my understanding is that much of the activity concerning the Trump administration and the Russia investigation and all of that is more directly federal than state. The statutes that are implicated by the conduct that is being investigated by the independent counsel, the special counsel, involve campaign finance laws, which are federal statutes. There are statutes that, like the Logan Act, that state that individuals may not get involved in negotiations with foreign governments. That's a federal statute. The espionage statutes are federal statutes. There's a statute, and I think this is the one that the special counsel is currently investigating, has to do with whether or not you are offering aid to a foreign country that is trying to affect our election. It is illegal in our country, a federal statute, for foreign governments to make contributions or to influence an election. So one of the areas of inquiry by the special counsel is whether the actions of the Trump campaign coordinated in a way with people from Russia who were trying to influence the outcome of the election. In Maryland, we have two different branches of the federal court. Is that correct? Well, yes, that's correct. The third, There are three main levels to the federal uh, federal court system, and the top level is the Supreme Court, so okay. that wouldn't apply in Maryland. But you have a trial court in the federal system. That's referred to as the district court. And then the first level of appeal is the uh, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeal. So the circuit courts in the federal system are the intermediary appellate court. And then, of course, if the party uh, is unhappy with the outcome in the circuit court on appeal, they could uh, file a writ of certiorari to the Supreme Court, and then it's up to the Supreme Court to decide if they wish to hear that case. And Supreme Court takes a very, very, very small fraction of the cases that are, are offered to them. That's correct. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of petitions for certiorari each year, and the Supreme Court might take between, I think, 50 and 100 total cases. I, I may even be overstating that. Okay. So not to confuse things further, but just to clarify, when we talk about the district court, there's the federal district court, this court where you have to have $75,000 in controversy and be citizens of different states. Is there also is a Maryland state district court, which is an entirely different creature? It is confusing to many people. It was confusing to me as a first-year law student when I heard professors talk about the district court. But the district court in Maryland, if you're in state court, is kind of the lesser of the two trial courts. There's a circuit court in Maryland, again, not to be confused with the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals or the circuit appellate courts in the federal system. But the circuit court in Maryland is where you have jury trials, where felonies are tried, divorce cases are tried. The district court is a court where there are no juries available. So if a case could have a jury trial attached to it, it would probably be filed in the circuit court, although there are cases of concurrent jurisdiction where you could choose to file in either court. 
So let's put the federal courts over on a different table and perhaps we'll talk about them on a different show because I believe that we would agree that the bulk of legal transactions in this state end up being in the state courts, correct? That's correct. Most of your listeners, if they have to go to court, are going to go to a state court. If you have a speeding ticket, you're going to be in the state court, in the district court. If you are involved with a dispute with your landlord, that would be landlord-tenant court, again, the district court. If you're uh, involved in a divorce proceeding, um, that's a circuit court case. But the district court is the place where most of your listeners are going to first become acquainted with the Maryland court system. That's where you're going for your traffic tickets, uh, your landlord-tenant matters, your criminal misdemeanors. Someone might get arrested for being loud and disorderly on a Saturday night after a football game. That would be a district court charge. Okay. Now, are there district courts all over the state, or is there one central place, or how does that work? Each county has a district court, and some of the larger counties, like Prince George's County, have more than one district court. Montgomery County has more than one district court. I believe uh, Anne Arundel County has more than one district court. A smaller county, like Cecil County, will have just one. But most of the larger counties in Maryland have more than one district court. And the district court is also where you go if you wish to file uh, for a protective order. Perhaps a relationship has gone bad and someone is abusing or exploiting one of the people who has broken up in this relationship. If you were to try and get a protective order asking a judge to sign an order telling a person to stay away from you, that would be in the district court. If you are, uh, if someone in your apartment building uh, takes your bike, you would file charges with the commissioner's office. If you knew who it was, you would identify them and they would issue a warrant for the arrest of that person who would then be brought into the district court for a criminal trial misdemeanor theft. Okay. So the district court sounds like it covers landlord-tenant matters. It covers, does it cover personal injury cases? It covers personal injury cases, but it has a limit on how much money you can sue for. So if your claim is worth more than $30,000, you'll want to bring it in the circuit court because the district court's jurisdiction, and that means jurisdiction means the ability of a court to hear a controversy, the jurisdiction of the district court is limited to $30,000. There are benefits if you're in an injury case. Car accidents are probably the most common case heard uh, in, in the courts of Maryland seeking money damages. In the district court, you could file your claim and submit your medical records and billing statements to the judge to determine the value of any damages you might be entitled to be awarded. If you choose to file in the circuit court and pray a jury trial, then you would have to bring in a doctor to testify that your injuries were caused by the car accident, or plaintiff's lawyers like to call them the motor vehicle collisions or the crash. And you would have to have an expert witness, a medical provider, testify that not only were the injuries caused by the collision, but that the medical treatment you received was necessary to treat your injuries and that the cost was fair and reasonable. We don't want people coming into court that get $15,000 physical therapy bills because, hey, those massages made my back feel really good, so I did them for three and a half years. You have to have medical treatment that is medically necessary. You can't go into court and say, you know what, this massage therapist that I know in Glen Burnie is just incredible, and I would go there every day because it made my back feel better. That will not be compensable unless you can have a doctor come into court and say, this treatment was medically necessary to cure this patient or to treat this patient's injuries. Not okay. all injuries are curable. 
So let me talk a little bit about the practical mechanism in the state district court. You said that you can come into court and you can bring your medical records and bills. As I understand it, there are particular laws or statutes that govern how those things are introduced. And without being hyper-lawyery, there's the Courts and Judicial Proceedings article. And anybody who listens to this show who wants to know about things, you can Google it and you can plug in the different sections. In my understanding, there's sections 10-104 and 10-105 of the Court Judicial Proceedings article that tell you what you need to put in to a pleading or a filing with the court to get those records into evidence. Is that right? Yes. I suppose the uh, operative statement would be, please don't try this at home. Okay. So you can file a small claims case in the district court, which now is up to $10,000, but there is still a statute in Maryland. And you know, I've never seen someone try and avoid the statute in small claims court, and I can explain that later. But Courts and Judicial Proceedings article. Think of the Laws of Maryland encyclopedia. Well, the Maryland Code is a series of volumes on different topics. So in the Courts and Judicial Proceedings article, which is the volume that talks about procedures in court, there's a statute that the legislature enacted that said you can introduce your medical records and billing statements in the district court, but you have to do it under certain time requirements and it has to be in a certain format. Please, by the way, if you want to do this on your own, and again, please call an attorney. If you make a mistake, you may lose your case. You don't want to submit your medical records and billing statements to the court for filing. You file a notice to the court. It's called a notice to introduce medical records and billing statements pursuant to Courts and Judicial Proceedings Article Sections 10104 and 10105. And you then list your medical bills and the medical records you intend to introduce. But one of the things that the courts have done is they're trying to protect people's privacy. So when I first started practice in 1985, interrogatory answers, other kinds of pleadings. Interrogatories are questions, correct? Fancy legal word for questions. And when you're involved in a civil case, you are required to answer questions should the other side send you these questions. But when I first started practice, we would file these answers to interrogatories in the court file. And then some less than honorable person might go to that court file and they've got an answer in interrogatory, it says your full name, your address, your date of birth, your social security number, all the jobs you've ever used. And there could be uh, identity fraud from that. So no longer do the courts accept pleadings for filings that include this personal information. So normally you file the notice of your intention to introduce it, and then you send the medical records and billing statements to the other side. I believe the deadline is 30 days prior to the trial date, but I file them when I file my lawsuits. So I haven't looked at the time deadline lately. Sure. But I just file that notice. And then when you go to court, you present your witnesses as to how the accident happened. You can present your client as to the injuries they suffered. You might bring in one or two witnesses who are friends or family of the person and say, well, you know, Joe used to always come over and shovel my snow. And that winter, he couldn't get out of bed and his back hurt so bad. And for three months, I remember talking to him. You would have witnesses that testify about the nature of your injuries. But instead of paying a doctor for half a day of his time to come to court, you simply give the judge those medical records and billing statements. And then at the end of the trial, most likely the judge will take a recess. And in most instances, they're busy enough that they have other cases. And they may say, I'm taking this under advisement, which simply means I need a little bit of time. 
and then they issue an order with a ruling telling whether you've won on liability, and if so, how much your damages are. It is an economical way to present a personal injury case. What would you estimate the savings is in district court by not having to bring a doctor in? What does it cost to bring a doctor in and test? Most doctors are going to charge you about $2,500 to $3,500 to take a half a day off to come into court. The preferred method is to videotape the doctor. Most doctors will charge an average of about $1,500, between $1,000 and $1,500 for an hour to two-hour videotape deposition. You videotape the doctor's testimony and you have two benefits. Number one, you aren't paying as high a fee because the doctor may charge you $1,000 and it may only cost you $500 to $1,000 to videotape the person and to get a court reporter to prepare it. But the other benefit you get is that the courts are not like trains running on time. So there's that expression about the trains being on time. So at one o'clock, my train is supposed to take off. If I'm not there at one o'clock, the train's gone. Well, when you call your doctor to come testify at one o'clock, what if the judge comes in and says, I'm so sorry, counsel, but we have an emergency hearing that I have to take. Hopefully we'll be done this afternoon, but we're gonna have to delay your trial until later in the afternoon. Your doctor may have blocked three hours out and has to leave to go do surgery. So the benefit to a videotape is you can play it for the jury at any time. The disadvantage is live testimony is always more persuasive. So it sounds like if you were to bring a personal injury case in the state district court, you don't have to bring in a doctor. You can file all these records and bill information with the court and then introduce it, save money, and you still get the same consideration. But as I understand it, you are limited to the district court cap of $30,000. Generally speaking, if you have a permanent injury, if you have an injury that for the rest of your life is going to cause you discomfort, pain, limitation, you don't file in the district court. The district court is for cases where someone has an injury, it resolves in three, six, nine months, the medical bills aren't terribly high, and you can try the case for less than $30,000 in value. The other advantage to going to district court is a shorter wait for trial. You do not pay as high a filing fee. If you're in the circuit court, you might pay $150 for a filing fee. In the district court, it might be $35. And another advantage to the district court is that you don't have to participate in depositions. If you're in the circuit court, the rules... Well, let me stop you. What is a deposition? A deposition is a question and answer period, usually held in the lawyer's office, although it can be in a library conference room if you have availability of it. It can be in your kitchen. But it is a question and answer period where the person answering the questions, called the deponent, is testifying under the penalties of perjury. A court reporter is present, and they type up all the questions. Like a court stenographer. Like That's the correct. They have these very funny-looking machines like you may have seen on TV, although nowadays many of the court proceedings are recorded digitally. So many of the court reporters are losing their jobs. It's all being digitally recorded. But that cost is about $300 per deposition. So you might have another five, six, $700 in deposition costs. You might have an extra $100 in a filing fee. So if you have a case that's worth $10,000, $15,000, $20,000, you don't want to spend four or $5,000 to bring it to court because one-third of your judgment is going to go to attorney's fees. And if you've got a $12,000 case and one-third goes to the attorney's fees and one-third goes to the expenses, it might be a strong consideration to go to the district court and not spend $3,000 for your doctor's testimony, for your deposition transcripts, and for the higher filing fee. And you'll get to court in six or eight months instead of 12 to 14 months. 
So there are instances where you have the state district court and you have the state circuit court. You mentioned concurrent jurisdiction, meaning you could be in either court if, with the same set of circumstances. If you have a $30,000 claim, you could file it in circuit court or district court. The kinds of claims we're talking about now are injury claims, damage claims, claims where you're seeking money damages. There are also claims in court that are, in the old days, they call them equity claims. And those are claims where you're asking the court to do something, and that is done through the signing of a court order. So those kinds of cases are heard in the circuit court, not in the district court. It might be a claim where your neighbor continues to plant tomato plants on your property, and you keep telling him to stop, and now he's put up a fence three feet into your property. So you would file a claim in the circuit court for injunctive relief. And you might say, I'm asking the court to enter an order compelling my neighbor to take down the fence he built on my yard. So district court is smaller cases, less serious crimes. Misdemeanors generally. Okay. And costs less. Are there different rules that apply in district court from circuit court? There are different rules that apply, but they're not substantially different. The rules of evidence would be the same. Unless you're in small claims court, let's say you loaned your lawnmower to your neighbor and he never returned it. You could go into court for an order compelling him to return the lawnmower. That could be done, I believe, in district court as well as circuit court. So district court has different rules but similar rules. And you mentioned something about small claims court. And it's a little bit of a, a creature unto itself in that lawyers typically when they come to court or people who are acting on their own behalf have to adhere to the Maryland rules, whether district or circuit court, have to adhere to the rules of evidence, which are fairly strict things that are a subject and for they another can be, day. They can be complicated. And if you don't know the rules of evidence, you might never get your evidence in, which means you, you, you might lose a case just because you didn't know a certain rule. So that doesn't apply in small claims court, correct? In small claims court, the legislature intended for people who had smaller cases that were too small to justify paying a lawyer. They were to be brought in small claims court. And since the, the legislature recognized that the people bringing these claims without lawyers weren't lawyers and didn't know the rules of evidence, the general rule in the small claims court is that the judges are to apply the rules of evidence and the rules of court liberally with the goal of achieving justice. So if you have someone who comes to court and they've got a $30 claim, they can't pay a lawyer $300, $400 an hour to come litigate for them. And no lawyer would take it on a one-third contingency fee in the hopes they would win one-third of $30. But claims are important. Justice is important regardless of the value. So if someone comes in with a $30 claim, they may be correct. Maybe the neighbor got mad and threw a rock through the window and it was a $30 repair. And the person whose window was damaged wants justice. It's not the money. Well, we want them to be able to go into court and even though they might not technically know the rule of evidence to get in a bill, the judge is to overlook the correct legal technical way to introduce it and try and achieve justice. So you might have a different outcome in small claims court than you would in the circuit court because of the application of the rules of evidence, which lawyers sometimes spend years studying so that they can accurately and correctly introduce their evidence. I will tell you, having done defense work as well as plaintiff's work, that if a lawyer does not know the rules of civil procedure, if it's a civil case, does not know the rules of evidence. As a good defense lawyer, I might be able to beat a case that he should have won just because he didn't know how to introduce the records or he didn't know 
the procedures to admit certain types of evidence necessary to prove his case. I would presume that applies even more when we start talking about people who are not lawyers trying to bring their cases to court. If you're not in small claims court and you're not a lawyer, you can lose your case without understanding why. And the reason might be that you didn't technically do all of the things necessary for the court to admit your evidence. And things like authentication. I mean, how do we know that what you're seeking to introduce is authentic? How do we keep people from introducing Photoshopped exhibits? So that's why the rules of evidence were enacted. So we have district court state, we have circuit court state, and then of course we have these federal courts. There are appellate courts, courts of appeal in the state of Maryland also, correct? Yes, and I'll tell you one interesting thing that's probably of more interest to your listeners than the other aspects of appellate rules. Most of the time, most of the people listening to the show are going to find themselves in district court, whether it's for a speeding ticket, whether it's an unfortunate incident where perhaps you were arrested for drinking and driving. But one of the interesting things about Maryland is that if you have a misdemeanor charge and you are in the district court, you are entitled to a trial de novo on appeal, and it means a new trial. The nature of appeals is that when a person loses a trial, they go to the appellate court and say, stop, the judge got it wrong. He made a mistake and I was convicted because of that mistake. And the appellate court must look at the record of the trial below. Whether the trial transcript or tape recording that's correct. and evidence. But one of the fascinating things about Maryland law is that if you are convicted in the district court of a misdemeanor, you can file an appeal and bada bing, bada boom, that conviction's gone. You start all over. Sounds like that's good for business for lawyers. It is, but I will tell you, it probably took me five years of practice before I stopped looking up the statute every time I went to district court because I just couldn't believe it. It's called the two bites at the apple rule. Well, good and for the state of Maryland. That's what I call it. It's not generally known by that. But if you're in misdemeanor court and you're charged with a misdemeanor crime and the state proves their case, the judge convicts you, you file a notice of appeal, and you start all over in the circuit court as if the first trial never happened. Now, that isn't necessarily true when you're in state district court trying a civil case, correct? That's correct. If you appeal a case uh, from the district court, you don't get a new trial. A circuit court judge will review the issues you've raised on appeal to see whether or not the trial judge made a mistake. If the trial judge made a mistake, and that mistake can affect the outcome of your trial, the court has the right to overturn that and send it back to the district court for another trial. Okay. So if you have an unfortunate outcome in circuit court, in state circuit court, then you can appeal to the Court of Special Appeals. Is that right? That's correct. That's Maryland's first appeals court. There are three judges that will hear your case, and then the majority that agree on whichever side determines the outcome. The Court of Appeals has nine judges, and you will generally try your case before all nine. You have to go to the Court of Special Appeals first. So before we race to the finish line on this show, we will reiterate that the district court of the state of Maryland is the lower-level court for smaller cases and less significant crimes. The circuit court is the court of primary trial, jury where trials. jury trials are and more Felonies. significant cases and divorces are. The Court of Special Appeals is an appellate court from the circuit court, and I guess also from district court. And then the final area, if you're unhappy with the first three courts, is the Court of Appeals, which is the highest court. And like the United States Supreme Court, it doesn't take every case. It takes cases that it chooses to take, correct? That is correct. So final area we're going to cover right now is suppose you have to go to court 
and you are in Howard County and the district court here in Ellicott City up on the hill not that far away from here. How do you know what courtroom to go to? Your trial notice will tell you the courtroom, but when you first come in, there will be an electronic bulletin board. Some of the courts will have paper printouts. You go find your name, and it'll tell you what courtroom to go to. Get there early enough that you have enough time. If it's a criminal case or if it's a traffic case, you want to get there half an hour early to talk to the prosecutor to see if you can work out your problem. That is if it's a criminal case. If it's a criminal case, you pro- it's a traffic case, you can probably talk to them. If it's a uh, drinking and driving case or another criminal case, I would not recommend anyone talking to the prosecutor without an attorney. Let the attorney talk because what the attorney says is not usable in court. What you say to that prosecutor, if you say that morning, well, I was drinking and driving. I did have too much to drink, but it's the first time. Well, that prosecutor can now become a witness. The assistant prosecutor who heard you say that can now become a witness. So you have to be careful what you say to a prosecutor. It is always wise if you're charged with a crime to retain a counsel. If you don't have money for a lawyer, please call the public defender's office. Do not go into a criminal case unrepresented. I'm not saying that for self-serving reason. I'm saying that because it's good advice. Okay. So is it set up similar in circuit court? You go to circuit court and you want to know what courtroom to go to and that sort of thing? Circuit court, you look at the electronic bulletin board. You always get there early enough. You look up your name. You'll find your name and it'll direct you to the courtroom. And I would presume similar suggestions apply with regard to not talking to the state's attorney unless your lawyer is there talking for you. If you're in the circuit court, it's most likely you're being charged with a very serious offense, probably a felony. You should not be talking to the prosecutor other than about the trial date and what their offer would be. I can't imagine a situation where you're charged with a felony where you would choose to be self-represented. The money spent on a lawyer or the the time spent with a public defender is crucial to getting the best outcome in your case. Thank you very much, Alan, for all of your insight into this. I have a feeling this is a topic that might stimulate some other input from our listeners. If you are interested in having a further discussion about any topic, just send me an email at bobseverydaylaw at gmail.com, and I'll be happy to address it at a future show. This has been Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Thanks very much. See you around the corner. (laughs) 